we as litigators, a lot of times want to think that what we do is the be all and end all, but really we're just a tool for these companies that have broader business objectives. And we need to keep that in perspective. So sometimes just like in district court cases, for example, it makes sense to settle early. In other cases, maybe it's life or death, or this is a really important product and, and you've got to make a fight. Or maybe there's some business arrangement that's mutually beneficial for both sides that can be worked out. So you need to find out what's the best solution for your client's business. And we can go either way. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode of All Things Investigations. We're going to take things a little bit different direction today because I have with me Andrew Kopsidis. Andrew, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. He recently authored a couple of client alerts entitled, We've Been Sued in the ITC, Now What? A 10-Step Guide for In-House Counsel, Parts 1 and 2. And Andrew, I really wanted to explore this with you. As our audience knows, I'm a recovering trial lawyer, so anytime I can talk to another trial lawyer about trial, I'm going to be very happy. But after reading your pieces, it struck me that this is actually just a little bit different flavor of trial. So before we get going, though, could you tell us a little bit about your academic background and your practice at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed? Sure. Happy to. I earned a degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Maryland in 1992. Then I worked for about five years at NASA before figuring out I, I wanted to give law school a try. So I went to George Washington University at night while I was working for a law firm during the day and ended up graduating from there in 1999. What's the nature of your practice now? The best way to describe my practice, I think, is that I do litigation and strategic consulting in intellectual property matters. The litigation part's pretty clear. I litigate IP cases all over the country. And the strategic counseling is really, I consider it advising clients before something becomes a litigation or maybe helping them to avoid getting sued, which is always greatly appreciated. Andrew, could we start with what is the ITC? Yeah, so the ITC is this sort of small but incredibly powerful federal agency that most normal people who don't practice there like I do have never heard of. It handles a variety of tasks related to international trade, but the part where it's really powerful is that it can conduct investigations of products that are being imported into the U.S. from abroad. And if those products have been made in a foreign country using some sort of unfair trade practice, the ITC has the authority to bar those products from coming into the U.S., essentially closing off the U.S. market for whatever company is manufacturing those products. And unfair trade practices is a really broad category. It's everything from 
IP infringement, like patent and trademark infringement to trade secret misappropriation and false advertising. And the list really goes on and on for the number of types of cases you can bring there. Who is the plaintiff in these cases, Andrew? So the plaintiff, or as they're called in the ITC, the complainant, is really any company that has, that can point to some what's called domestic industry in the U.S. So any company that's doing some business in the U.S. and has invested money in trying to build an industry, let's say for cell phones or widgets or whatever, who then is facing imports coming in from abroad that have been manufactured unfairly, either because they're infringing the patents that that U.S. company owns or they've are in breach of contract or some of any kind of unfair way. And they're coming into the country and trying to undercut the U.S. industry. Could that extend to allegations of bribery and corruption to win contracts, to build products, to ship to the United States? Conceivably, yes. I say conceivably because I don't think that that type of case has been brought there in my experience. But really, the power of the agency is really strong in that if you can point to just about any U.S. statute that's being violated in the overseas manufacture of the product, then you probably have a basis for an ITC claim. You use the term unfair business practice. In addition to being an incredibly broad term, it also strikes me as you could bring in tort law concepts. So you could have something beyond simply a breach of contract, but some other misappropriation of business or interference with contract or tortious interference with contract or other concepts we see really in the tort world. Would that be a fair assessment as well? As long as you can find a basis for it in a federal statute. So you can't use, for example, a California tort claim or something like that. There has to be something in the federal statutes that it runs afoul of. But yes, conceivably, that's true. Well, I didn't get the flavor of all of that from your articles, but now I'm really scared because I was going to move to what I thought was the scary part, which is just the speed of these cases. I'm going to ask you to kind of walk us through that, but a six-month discovery in the corporate world, six months, uh, it takes typically six months to change offices and to do everything to, to get a lawsuit in and get a complaint in with the information, get someone like yourself, do discovery and prep for trial. So could you maybe walk us through the steps, just starting with part one of the article? Yeah. So this whole article came about because I've been litigating cases in the ITC for like 20 years and, you know, never fails. You know, I'm advising some client or some company that's just got hit with their first ITC complaint. And there's like this moment of panic that sets in because they realize no matter how many district court cases they've done or state court cases, all of a sudden, they're looking at a completely different and faster animal, and they really need a lot of guidance in the beginning and don't have a lot of time to get their legs under them. Really, I outlined 10 steps because I wanted to make this sort of like a laid out plan for in-house counsel. And just briefly, the first one is obviously to review the complaint and try to get an early sense of what your company's exposure is. What are you facing here? Are you facing somebody who just wants money or are you facing a real competitor that's trying to put you out of business? That'll sort of, questions like that is what your management's going to want to know and it'll sort of frame your response. The next step is you got to warn your management of the threat because like I said, getting the U.S. market closed off is, it can be a death sentence to some companies. And not just that, 
you're going to need a lot of management buy-in when you need witnesses to be deposed on short notice and documents to be produced on short notice and things like that. So it's really important for in-house counsel to get their client, i.e. the management, on board with the strategy. Then you've got to identify your witnesses and your documents. Again, the speed of the ITC is what's often frightening. So a complaint gets filed. It's usually the first time you've ever seen it. And then 30 days from then, you're expected to start discovery. And that means getting ready to produce documents, answering interrogatories, all of that stuff. And oh, by the way, you only have 10 days to respond to those requests, unlike 30 days in a district court. So whereas the complainant's been preparing its case for months before they file their complaint and they've got all their ducks in a row, you get hit with this and you have at the outside 30 days or so to get your entire house in order if you're the respondent. And that, that's what what's really scary about this. So identify your custodians, get your lit holds in place, all of that stuff, and then hire some good ITC counsel. I've seen a lot of good lawyers stumble in the ITC because they just weren't familiar with the nuance of practice there. Things like what do the judges favor and what do they dislike? You know, what are their peculiarities? But also you have this third party called the Office of Unfair Import Investigations, which is a bunch of government lawyers that you've got to deal with at the same time you're fighting your opponent. So, you know, you want somebody who knows those OUII attorneys and knows how to work with them and persuade them that your side of the case is the right one and so on. And then also just somebody who's used to dealing with those tight, tight deadlines. Can I ask, who are the judges? Are these Article Three judges invested with Article One authority, or are they ALJs, or are they something else? They're administrative law judges, and they do nothing but these, what we call 337 investigations. You know, they're not like a district court judge that's doing criminal and civil and, you know, all sorts of things. They do one thing and one thing only, and that's these types of investigations. They're really good at them, and they serve as the fact finder. Is there a ITC bar so that there are people you regularly see either across the way, across the table from you, or in court? Is there a small bar that you all know each other? It's a fairly small bar. Yeah, we do. We have something called the ITC Trial Lawyers Association, which is the closest thing to a bar for us. But it is a fairly small community, which is, again, another reason why you want to make sure that you hire good ITC counsel, because the judges, the OUII attorneys, the staff attorneys that work for the judges, they know the practitioners there and they know the ones that they can trust and the ones that have misled them in the past and things like that. So it's a pretty small, re your reputation really does precede you. How did you come into this line of litigation work? Pretty much by accident, actually. I was a freshly minted associate and walked into a partner's office asking for some work to do. And he said, I have this ITC case. And I said, I've never heard of the ITC before. About eight months later, I was in trial. You mentioned something I wanted to follow up on, which is your, as in your personal credibility with your opponents, with the government lawyers, with the staff attorneys on the court. I've talked to a large number of your partners who do corporate investigations and the negotiations with the government, and they routinely say that your word, your promise, your reputation is the key in dealing with the government. It sounds like that's true in this forum as well. 
It absolutely is. I mean, here you've got an administrative law judge who's not only deciding the procedural issues of your case, but he or she is going to decide the merits of your case. And there's trials and there's witnesses. And when lawyers make arguments and lawyers put up expert witnesses and do direct examinations or cross-examination, the judges have to make credibility determinations. And sometimes it's very close and they don't know one witness from another, but they know the lawyers. And that can often be enough to tip the scale in one direction or another. Are the judges subject matter experts in these areas? Are they legal experts? Are they both or are they something else? They're sort of a combination, I would say. There was a time where the ITC was hiring administrative law judges from other agencies like like FERC and SEC. But the last several hires, the last three or four hires, I believe, have come from inside within the ITC. So judges that actually had some experience there, either as a staff attorney or as a practitioner in the bar. And so they really do know the practice well. Like I said, all they do is these types of Section 337 investigations. And so they are subject matter and legal matter experts, all of them from top to bottom. Forgive me for that digression and all of the procedure, but like I said, I'm a complete trial geek. I interrupted you about when you were talking about retaining ITC counsel. So now you've been called on board. Is the same sort of need for speed or I guess the need for speed also a factor in what you have to do? And how do you come in and make an early assessment for a client like you need to settle or we can fight it or something else? So the first question I like to ask clients is, what's your business objective here? We as litigators, a lot of times want to think that what we do is the be all and end all, but really we're just a tool for these companies that have broader business objectives. And we need to keep that in perspective. So sometimes just like in district court cases, for example, it makes sense to settle early. In other cases, maybe it's life or death, or this is a really important product and, and you've got to make a fight. Or maybe there's some business arrangement that's mutually beneficial for both sides that can be worked out. So you need to find out what's the best solution for your client's business. And we can go either way. But in the meantime, while you're trying to figure that out, you still have these deadlines coming at you fast and furious. And so one of the things I like to do early is something called a scrub session where I get in a room with my team and we get the engineers or whoever's familiar with the product in the room. And if it's a patent case, we just go through the patent or a trademark case or whatever, and you just go through the merits of the case with the entire outside litigation team and inside employees. And you just get everybody on the same page and you figure it out early. Better to figure it out way in, in the early stages of the case than when you're getting ready for trial. So that, I think, is hugely important. And that's really, I think, where outside counsel can make its first really big impact is organizing that early assessment of the case. Do you file responsive pleadings or any other affirmative claims potentially against the complaint? An answer is due, but the answer is not due until sort of later on in the case, if you will. So the complaint gets filed. It's not like in a district court where a complaint gets filed and a case is off and running. In the ITC, the ITC has to actually accept the complaint. Now, that tends to be largely a formality. You know, I, I would say, you know, Nine out of 10 or more complaints are accepted, what we call instituted. 
but they get 30 days to make that decision. And in the meantime, you, you may have to file a couple things, comments or certain early requests, but then you file your answer 20 days after the investigation gets instituted. There are no counterclaims, though. You can't file any counterclaims. So these actions are strictly one way. And if you're the respondent, what we call the defendant, you're really just on the receiving end in this case. What's the role of the government attorneys in this part of the process? Yeah, really interesting three-way dynamic goes on there. So let's say you and I are on opposite sides and we're representing clients and we're fighting it out just like you would in a regular case. Now you've got this third party and they are trained attorneys. They know the subject matter well. They know the law there well. And they are there technically to represent the public interest. And they stay neutral on most of the merits of the case. Throughout the case, they participate in discovery and all of that. And then right before trial, they come down on one side or the other. And so now you have this interesting dynamic where you might be going to trial and now it's two on one against you because the staff attorneys come out against you and in, on the side of your opponent or vice versa. Or maybe the staff attorney is kind of split issues. He's with you on some and with your opponent on some. And so it makes for very interesting dynamic when you're doing directs and crosses and redirects and things like that. You have now moved into discovery. You're, uh, you've scrubbed the case. You're in discovery and you've moved along. And I was intrigued uh, by one of your points in part two, which was go on the offensive. What is going on the offensive if you're the defendant in an ITC matter? Yeah, and it requires a broader look. There's sort of many offensive that you can take in the case. And what I mean by that is your complainant's been laughing so far, you know, because they had months to get their case ready and they came in and they were all ready for discovery and they caught you off guard and you had to scramble to get your people identified and your documents and all that. But then if you do that right, you get to a place where you catch up to them. You neutralized that advantage. And now the field is level. And I've represented a lot of respondents where we actually were able to take the initiative in discovery and all the discovery fights end up being about the other side, the complainants, poor discovery performance. So there is a way that you can sort of judo flip the complainant's initial advantage in that case and take the case by the scruff of the neck yourself. But then in a broader sense, say these are two competitors going at it and settlement seems unlikely. You can file your own ITC action as a counteraction. It'd be a separate case on a separate timeline, but it will be counterbalancing. You can file district court actions to level things out. And one other interesting aspect of the ITC is usually when a company files an ITC case, they also file a case in district court at the same time. The reason is because in the ITC, you don't get money damages. So they file the district court so they can get their money damages there. They get their injunction in the ITC and then they get their money damages in the district court. And the respondent has within its sole discretion by statute, the ability to stay that district court case. So if I'm the respondent and I've been sued and I see there's this district court case pending in some district court in California or whatever, I can just go in and I can request a stay and the judge has to grant it. And I don't need the other side's permission or anything. But that brings up an interesting tactical way that you can also put pressure on them is sometimes, you know, I've advised clients to not stay that case. 
especially if maybe we're the bigger company and you make that complaint and fight in two different fronts. So that's another way, just one example of how you can go on the offensive. As you know, this is an audio podcast, so I'm going to describe for our listeners the smile on his face when he was talking about all the strategies. It's clear you, you enjoy thinking about these things and doing them. Could you tell us what is a trial like in front of the ITC? Trials, in terms of duration and procedure, they can be a lot like a district court. There's no jury, so everything gets tried to the judge. That makes the calculus a little different, for example, about whether you want to waste your time on motions in limine and things like that. But then trial is also different depending on the judge. Some judges don't do any live direct testimony. All the witnesses put their direct testimony in on paper, and then all you got is cross-examinations at trial, which again is another weird dynamic because your witness comes in and they're, you know, you think you're going to get this direct to kind of loosen them up, and then they're on the defense from the first moment. Other judges do live direct, live cross, all of that stuff. So it's really dependent on the judge. Good trial skills still win the day. Good pointed cross-examinations, good organization of your exhibits. All of that still matters, just like it would in district court. The rules of evidence are treated a little uh, more lax there, though. More suggestion than rules? Noted guidelines that may or may not be adhered to. Where does the court sit? So the court sits right here in D.C., down in Northeast. Does the court, or does the judge rather, make a bench ruling? Do they issue a written opinion, or is it really up to the discretion of the judge? They may make bench rulings on smaller things like discovery motions and all of that, but they typically give themselves about three months after the trial to come out with their full assessment. And they've got to do a full, what's called initial determination of every issue in the case. They can't say, well, because I find this, I don't need to address these other issues. They usually have to address all of them because they're making a record for the commission. So they give themselves about three months to do that, and they're usually pretty good about sticking to that. And these opinions come out, and they're usually a couple hundred pages addressing all the issues. And then you may or may not get some commission-level review, which is sort of your last step of administrative review before you're off to federal court of appeals. And that was going to be my next question. Where is the appeal? Is it directly to a court of appeals? Is it a de novo appeal? So the commission itself has its general counsel's office, and they will look over every ID and decide whether they want to review any issues, whether they want supplemental briefing from the parties on any issues. And then they'll come back with a final, what's called a final determination. And it may adopt, it may reverse, it can do all any sort of manner of things. They're usually fairly deferential to the ALJs on the fact-finding issues and the credibility determinations and things like that, but they don't hesitate to reverse on legal issues or send things back to the judge to redo. And then once the commission has done its review and come out with its final determination, then you get to appeal and all appeals are taken to the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. And what happens to the stayed district court case if there was one filed? If it was filed and if it was stayed, typically you notify the judge once your ITC case is over. What I mean by over is usually through federal circuit appeal. So your ITC case is going to last about 16 months on average. Your federal circuit appeal could last another 18 months, something like that. So it's only after that point typically that 
the district court case will get unstayed. You may get a full-blown case again that wants to redo every aspect of the case, or you may get a judge that sort of takes note of the commission record and streamlines things. Andrew, what are two or three of the biggest mistakes you've seen corporations make that have either hampered you or really hurt their defense of a complaint brought against them? I would say the first thing that I have seen is not taking the case seriously enough. And then by the time a company is ready to start making a fight, the case is basically too far gone. The discovery period is only about four or five months, five months or so. And then you're into pretrial proceedings and all of that. If a company isn't taking things seriously, the case can be lost before it's practically even begun. Hiring counsel that's not experienced, like I said before, there's so much nuance to ITC practice that hiring cut rate counsel or hiring counsel that may be good in other settings, but has never been in the ITC before is just not a wise move. So I, I would say that those are probably the two biggest mistakes that I've seen companies make. And the statistics actually bear out my latter point. I did a statistical analysis recently of Chinese companies that got sued in the ITC because a lot of the companies that end up getting sued there are Chinese companies. And I found that there's this sort of notion that the ITC may be biased because there's a lot of judgments against Chinese counsel. But I found when you weeded out the cases where they defaulted or where they just hired poor counsel, they actually had a fairly good success rate there. Andrew, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or the client alerts that you have written, where would be the best place or places for them to go? Sure. The best place is our website, HughesHubbard.com, and you can find out information about our intellectual property and technology practice there. That includes ITC work. Andrew, I wanted to uh, thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. It's been a fascinating discussion of an area that I must admit I was not too familiar with, as in not familiar at all. So thank you, and I hope we can at some point continue this conversation. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate it.